Welcome to the Few Podcast. Never in the field of human contact was so much owed by so many can so few. So you want to become one of the few. You can't skip steps. You have to put one foot in front of the other. Things take time. I have a dream. I have a dream. Hear inspiring stories from the few and learn about what it takes to turn your dreams into a reality. It's a day for all Australians, isn't it? It's a day that brings us all together. Marvellous. Four. Oh, thanks everyone for coming back to another episode of The Few with me, Boo, and my legendary co-host, Shawnee, Sean, Sean Sewell. G'day, Shawnee. How are you, mate? Yeah, good, mate. I, I'd nearly forgotten what you look like. It's been uh, it's been a while between uh, between episodes and traveling to Sydney. Yeah, there's only one thing that continually happens, mate, is you just get a bit fatter, rounder in the face, hair goes greyer, uh, and you run out of energy. So uh, it's good to be back here and, and reinvigorated. And uh, connecting uh, with the few because reflecting, this is our first one for 2021, isn't it? So reflecting over uh, 2020 and having a break on the holidays makes you realise, you know, it's great to do this to share with everyone, but I personally get quite a lot out of these podcasts. I find them quite energising myself. Likewise, some really amazing conversations of all sorts of stories, walks of life. And yeah, obviously someone can be one of the few in different contexts. It's not just business. It's not just, um, you know, some personal you know, situations or tragedies that happen. It's, uh, it's such a broad uh, broad scope of, I suppose, the human condition. It's unbelievable. And, and just those common themes uh, that we keep seeing around uh, resilience, about people having choice taken away from them and just doubling down, moving forward. And connecting with what they're uh, all about in, in terms of their life purpose, and I think today uh, our guest is uh, really supercharged that <laughs> uh, that sense of purpose and execution. I mean, that's another key thing about uh, the few. Don't you think, mate? It's just the ability to turn that dream into reality. And you know, I mean, I learned that from from you a, a while ago in one of our conversations. You, you made the comment that a lot of people, it's the only difference between them getting what they want and not getting what they want is the ability to execute. And oh. uh, that's clearly a trait of the few that I've seen as well. No, absolutely. Uh, today's uh, guest is an execution uh, machine. Uh, and we obviously mean that in the way that we talk about executing strategy, not in any other way, shape or form. Uh, Mark Wales is our guest today. Mark is a former uh, SAS uh, major. Mark wanted to be in the army since he was a kid. And his dream was realised uh, after he left school and uh, join the uh, SAS, which here in Australia is the equivalent of our, is our special forces and a, an incredibly elite a bunch of individuals. Uh, the selection process these guys go through, look, I guess that used to be a bit of a secret, but uh, today we see celebrities getting pushed through the process. I, I'm really interested to hear what Mark's thoughts are on celebrity SAS selection versus real world selection. But uh, not not only that, I think uh, that, that was Mark's first foray uh, into a career and a paid job. And since then, I'll tell you what, mate, we'll talk about an adventure. Uh, he'd been in Afghanistan, suffered the mental impacts of uh, being in that environment. Uh, for some reason, decided to jump on a plane, go study where Donald Trump studied, became a, an alumni of uh, the Ivy League College of Wharton over in the US, started his own luxury clothing brand, was an associate of McKinsey & Co., the firm uh, advising major corporations on uh, you know, how to get things done. Uh, he also, uh, somewhere along the line, decided to make a segue and use those survival skills that we developed as a soldier uh, on the telly and was a contestant on the Australian version of uh, Survivor. 
Today, he is a speaker. He's just become an author. And if I keep talking about him, I'm not going to have any time left. So let's just say, g'day, g'day, Mark. Thanks so much, mate, for uh, coming on to the few podcast. Hey, good to see you all again. Yeah, great to have you on board, Mark. So, um, yeah, so one of the things that uh, that uh, you know, we've seen over the last you know, 12 months or so is, is definitely a big shift in in uh, the landscape for a lot of people and a lot of, lot of areas. And uh, I guess, how did you find the, the year of 2020 that it was uh, being stuck in a, a lockdown in, in Melbourne for, for nearly four months or whatever it was? And, uh, you know, how did you uh, deal with that? How did you handle that? And, and you know, coming out kind of the other side, a bit more uh, liberty again, freedom of freedom. Have you left that bunker, mate? Have you left yeah, that no, bunker? No, I've been down here since <laughs> since February last year. So I've got to, uh, you know, got to get outside eventually. But um, yeah, what a, what a year, what a year it was. And obviously a hard year for a lot of people and tragic for a lot of, as well. But I think this was the, the shock that we've all been kind of knowing was coming, but we didn't know how it would arrive or in what form. I think before this, the GFC was probably the, the economic shock um, we're looking at, and also a long series of wars since the the turn of the century. It's been a it's been a funny kind of twenty year period that we haven't you know we've seen examples of, but it's been exacting, and then it's all built up kind of this last twelve months. So um, for me, you know, we were doing a lot of speaking, and that a lot of that dried up, so we had to kind of pivot what we were doing into into something else. And I thought for a long time about writing, and that was the the right time to do it. So I kind of pitched a a manuscript. Um, which would be a non-fiction narrative memoir about my experiences overseas in, in the military and, um, you know, executed that during the pretty extensive lockdown we had in Melbourne. Almost almost a gift, isn't it? If you want to write a book, oh, just put the whole world in lockdown. Lovely. Uh, what, what else lovely. are you going to do? <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was definitely uh, definitely trapped in the bunker there for a while, just typing away. Awesome. So what, what, what's the, uh, normally don't jump straight into a plug of the book, but what's the title, you know, what's it about and, and when can we, uh, when's it available? Yeah, the title is Survivor Life in the SAS. Um, I just did a cover reveal the other day and it's, it's available for pre-order. But, um, yeah, I just thought there was a gap in the, like a lot of military memoirs talk pretty extensively about the military aspects of, of a campaign or a battle. And I really wanted to dive deep on the, the experience of it and really try and have you in there in the field kneeling kind of next to me and, and the team feeling what that's like. And then also coming out of it and, and, coming out of a life-changing experience and then how do you process it and move on with your life and do something good after that um, without succumbing to the, uh, you know, the bad effects that can have on you. So why choose that career, mate? What was it about uh, the SAS? Uh, once you embark upon a career in the military, you, you make a few life decisions that stick with you forever. Uh, so what was it that appealed to you and how did you find yourself are becoming motivated to go through a process because, as I said before, real SAS selection is not quite like what you see on the telly, is it? Uh, it's, yeah, the old, uh, old seven-day uh, SAS selection on TV is, is a good one. And it's all relative, right? Like for someone who's not trained, that's actually pretty bloody hard. And when you go and do selection as a soldier, you got it more training. So it's kind of relative, but, um, yeah, the selection course is hard. I think when I first saw... SAS soldiers. I was looking at photos of the Iranian embassy siege, which happened in 1980. So pretty old pictures of a counter-terrorist team uh, going through the windows, uh, trying to storm this building, trying to rescue hostages. And I, when I saw it, I was like, holy shit, that looks like something that would be, you'd be working on the edge of your limit or beyond your limit pretty much the whole time. When I found out it was pretty exclusive and hard to get into, I was even more obsessed with getting in there and it just took a very long time to go through the process of joining the military 
and then getting onto the selection course and, and sticking it out and passing. With that course and with the journey as a kid uh, coming through that, what were some of your key attributes, you think? What was it about Mark the Kid uh, that led you down this path? And is what you were as a kid and how you behaved and what you sought out a similar trait to some of the other men and women that you serve with? Yeah, it's funny because it's a mixed bag of people that go there, but I think they've all got common threads, I guess, in traits that run through them. I was a bit of a dreamer as a kid, like I, you know, loved the shuttle program and dinosaurs and computer games and science fiction. And I guess I always had that imagination of seeing what something would look like and how good it would be. And I always thought about a career in the military and, and what that would look like. And I was motivated by that kind of goal. And then it was just, I guess, a case of, of having the discipline to really work towards it every day. And I think to do anything like that, you've just got to be excited by that end vision. A lot of people are like, well, I want to be a rap star. And if you're motivated by that, then you'll go out and do the hard work and, you know, learn how to be a performer and musician and work on stage. And it'll take a decade. But by the end of that, you might be a pretty good rapper. And it's is, a, that, is that the next twist in your career? That's the next journey, step. Mate? That's the yeah. next step is um, <laughs> Papa G, um, you know, rapping. But DJ Wales with an H. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So, um, yeah, so... You know, it just takes that takes time. These things take time, and you would know that being a pilot. Like it, you start off in a simulator, and then you go to a little aircraft. And you don't just jump in a jet and off you go. It just takes a lot of time to get that stuff done. I think you're right, though. I think that I think in the military, particularly in the uh, elite, everyone in the military is a, does a great service and are wonderful human beings. Uh, when you start to get up to some of the more selective streams, uh, you said something really insightful which is you're a bit of a dreamer. My whole life at school, I was always like, he's a dreamer. He's got his head out the window. Yeah. And I think having that dream and a vision and that emotional connection to something powers you through the work because otherwise just you wouldn't, you would just have your head out the window the whole time. And it's interesting seeing my son and, and kids as they grow up now uh, doesn't seem to have that same connection. Like it's much, careers seem much softer and broader and, and more there's a lot more of them now you can do a lot more whereas i guess when we were growing up it was pretty there wasn't a lot to choose from that was adventurous whereas now there's so much adventure and and everything you've done now i mean you, you must still have that dreamer inside you yeah i think and and the funny thing was is once i'd been through that the the end of being in the sas that dream i was like holy shit what what's the next kind of dream and i I had always thought about, I think, New York City and the U.S. I don't know why, but I kept thinking about um, just how exciting those cities were and the life over there and how, you know, how hard they work and the possibilities of the place. And so that's what I jumped to when I left the SAS. I didn't know really what I was going to find, but I thought, you know, it's a good place to be in the meantime while I'm trying to figure out what the next step will be. And that's what took me to, to business school in the U.S., so when obviously that's a, that's a bit of a change going from, um, uh, I suppose in, in a military environment, it's it's quite structured. It's 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 got its layers of of leadership and all that sort of stuff to go out and say, okay, well, I'm going to actually learn about business and you know the buck stops with me. There isn't going to be you know five layers of leadership above me. There's no structure. It's all up. To, it's all up to me now. What what was the driver that got you to shift from I suppose a, a very uh, it's probably a very, very trained and a very honed skill set, but also conditioned um, stuff. What what got you to move over to, you know, the thought of, well, I'm actually going to go do it myself now. I'm actually going to take the lead. 
I think, uh, yeah, I, I knew that bit was going to be hard, but I think I, once I got over there and, and realized how little I knew about the career I was going into, that's when I thought, oh my goodness, I'm actually going to have to work hard to understand the environment that everyone else has been in for 15, 20 years already. You know, I'm coming, I'm basically entering their world. And I think the, the mistake a lot of people from the military or athletes make, they, they are top performers in their field, but it doesn't always translate immediately to the new field they're in. So you have to show the respect and the, I guess the humility as well that you are starting from the bottom and, and learn the basics. Don't skip that step. Go in there, learn the language, build a network, train yourself. I mean, I was on the laptop. I was on my computer doing um, Khan Academy videos about long division so I could figure out how to pass the bloody GMAT test. I was 32 years old. Like, that's kind of embarrassing. But I went and did the work, so I need to know it to, to be able to perform in the business tests. How important is that journey from from going from nothing, going from a, 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 here's a problem, and then applying yourself? I, I know for me, when it goes away and you've got somewhere, it's really hard. Like it's okay. Like I just started flying again. You know, I hadn't flown for 15 years, done it for a year, and you're like, oh, I figured it out again. And like, I oh, know I'm getting itchy feet. That's uh, hard to find that contentment. How, how do you find it, or, or do you just feel that life is a series of journeys, which is just up sine wave, just keep going up there, do something new, do something new. Yeah, I think the I've always been motivated by those long-term kind of not urgent but really important things that I wanted to do. One, you know, one was SAS and the other was trying to get into business school. And that the business school one took me two years from kind of start to finish. And that, in a lot of ways, I'm, I'm more proud of that um, than the SAS one because the SAS one I worked on for a really long time whereas this was a totally new field. I had to really turn quickly, learn quickly, and um, it was bloody hard. And so I think doing that repeatedly, that cycle of, you know, here's a new destination, how do I get the get the books and read about it and, and immerse yourself in it, that um, process I've gotten more comfortable with over the years, and that's that kind of learning how to learn has been important in transition. And clearly, obviously, you've coming from the background of the SAS, and uh, I guess one of the one of the first things you wouldn't necessarily attach to somebody there is that, that your decision was to go down the path of creating a fashion label. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, mate. It's lots of it's lots of mirrors in the average SAS locker room, mate. I'll tell you. Oh, plenty, <laughs> plenty. Similar to uh, our, our one of the podcasts we had with a good friend of mine, Patrick Kids from Patrick's. He's a former electrician who who had a a barbershop and then has men's hair products. Like that's his awesome. amazing business now, which is a you know, very, very different field. What what got you down to get on the path of, of in the fashion space? I think I saw in, in the fashion space, there was a huge gap uh, in addressing the, a segment like kind of me and, and like you guys, people that come from industries and workplaces that are, uh, you know, first responders or military or trades, things that have a, a, a very traditional notion of masculinity attached to them. Fashion doesn't cater to that at all and, and vice versa. That segment doesn't look for high fashion or, or luxury goods that much. And so I think because the, the values of a lot of those brands just don't resonate with people. And so when I looked at it, I'm like, literally no one has ever gone from special forces into fashion. So why not try that and find a whole new segment that gives people permission to um, take on a product that's a reflection of these experiences and these values that we that we have in these special ops units, and that's kind of why I did it. But certainly, blue ocean, <laughs> blue ocean, yeah, it's kind of what that, that's it. We and actually, when we looked at it, I'm like, 
this is the same. It's called tough luxury. It's not really there. Like there's luxury, but there's not really this tough luxury. It, Aaron Williams kind of tries to do it. Bell staff kind of tries to do it, but they, they don't have that authentic background to be able to pull it off. So that's, you're right. Where did the name Killcatcher come from? Um, the name came from when I was at business school, I was trying to think of a good name. I had all these weird names like, you know, door gunner clothing and like all these obscure names. And I, I thought of Killcatcher. I'm like, well, that's pretty full on, but I kind of like it. And, um, I bought the domain for it and I, I kept going back to it. And people would say to me, do, do not do that. It's, it's a terrible thing to do. But I think one of the worst things you can do in fashion is to be invisible. And you, you'll get that if you just got an innocuous name, you really need to have something else that's, that's special. So the name really carves a line on the ground. It, it carves a segment out of people that are going to love it. And a lot of other people don't. And that's, that's fine. That's who you get then catered to. It's an interesting point because uh, Kill Capture uh, recently has started to get a little bit of a tarnish on it when uh, we look at Australia and the fact that quite a lot of dirty laundry has been aired uh, from the regiment that you used to be from and some pretty serious consequences. The average punter wouldn't realise that some of the uh, corrective actions and punishments are very severe in terms of coming from a, a military background. You obviously served in a Afghanistan, mate, one of the key things they highlighted was the potential weakness inside the organization's leadership, which again is a, 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 a dagger to the heart when you when you talk about the SAS and, and the regiment. How did that impact you in, in, in terms of your identity and investing a lot of your life and what happened on the ground? How did you respond to all of this uh, coming out in the press in the last few months? Yeah, it was, and for anyone who hasn't seen it, there were, there were allegations that the SAS were involved in uh, the killings of, I think, about 39 or 36 Afghans in Afghanistan that were either non-combatants or, or something like that. So it, it kind of went straight to the heart of everything we're trying to achieve over there. We did so much good work, and then to see this, it, it felt like a real betrayal. I, I don't think – I knew it was going to be an issue. I just didn't – the scope of it really surprised me. I was like, how could there be this many incidents in one hit? Um, so it was a shock. And a lot of, a lot of my mates, I think, felt the same. We felt pretty sickened by it. And it was a, it really, you're talking about your life's work there. It's now got this indelible kind of stain on it. And it's hard because so much of what we did was really, really, really good work. And then you've got this hanging over it. And I don't know how you move on from that. I'm kind of surprised the unit didn't get shut down. Um, Units have been shut down for a lot less than that, and I know they they shut a squadron down. But um, I mean, we're we're lucky not to lose the whole unit, and um, I, I don't know how you recover from something like this. So, if you putting on your Wharton hat, your McKinsey hat, and looking at a business that had a major uh, hit to its reputation, and for for our listeners that may have had a bad run, or uh, entrepreneurs may have just accidentally put a foot wrong, not different scale, but how how do you bounce back from from reputational issues like this? I mean, what would your advice be, or some some tips for people that have have suffered this sort of incredible carnage? I think um, oh, I mean it happens to it's it, this doesn't just happen in the military. Yet companies that have had something happen which run so contrary to their values that um, it becomes a serious issue. I think you know. Um, straying from the values that you have either as a company or a person is where you can get into serious trouble. And that's kind of what we saw, I think, in the military. 
um, or that appears to be what's happened in the military. And, you know, it happens with companies. You look at Enron, all the major scandals that have happened in big companies, it's all been a divergence from the commonly held values of those that work there. So, I, I mean, I don't know how you recover from that. You you need to make pretty substantial change because it goes to the heart of culture. And to change that, you've got to have really a, a, an untouchable leadership group that's very good at what they do and it's going to take years. That is, it's impacting, a direct impact on 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 people's core, core beings. There's more than just the, just the values. It's questioning their integrity and all of that, you know, like it's just such a such a punch to the gut. So, I mean, I had a situation a couple of years ago where, you know, there was somebody, you know, putting forward claims that were completely bogus, but it, it was a massive, massive punch to the guts. And it took me quite a few months to, even though it wasn't real, it still feels real because someone's actually questioning your integrity and, mm. and it's, it is difficult to come back from. Can you come back from it? Well, yes, you can. In the end, it's got to, you've got to come back to the fact that if it's, if you know, you're not involved as an individual in it and yes, whilst your organization, your business or whatever may have, you know, some, some damage to the brand and, and these days digital mud sticks, whether it's mm. real or not, yeah. um, all you got to do is go back to those core values again, don't you? And really mm. just focus on what's next What's next? How do we how do we just prove that everything we're doing now is in alignment with the values versus whatever it was that that person's accused us of? Yeah, it's a, the and the whole uh, the the whole war crimes piece and the allegations and how it got to that point. I think is a case study in culture you know, on one hand and on strategy on the other. So if if and I'm talking specifically about that the conflict in Afghanistan. If you leave troops in one conflict for close to 12 years and send them back repeatedly don't act surprised when people eventually come off the rails or break um, to some extent which is i think i think there's part of that here i think some of the um well put it this way i I could feel that happening to me and i'd only been there you know four times by the end but by the end of my first tour i could feel the impact of it and we've asked guys to go back in some cases for double digit tours, I think the average number of tours was 4.5 and some had done as many as eight tours. That's, that's a lot. Like if you're talking about uh, a war of choice, that's a lot. Like then on on our doorstep about to take over Darwin and Perth, like this is a foreign battlefield supporting an alliance and it was a war of choice. And so I, I think that watching the, if there's been criminal behaviour um, on on behalf of soldiers, then yeah, you've got to absolutely address that. But there's a whole other side to this, which is around the responsibility you have when you launch a conflict in someone else's country to do it properly. And and we got let down on that front. You don't have. But, you, but you, the thing is that you've got you've got context. Whereas mm. when the media put it out to the general public. They have no context of what yeah. it's like to be in that environment. They've got no context at all. You've diversified your life as well, but for the average troop in the regiment, for someone who hasn't that diversity in, in terms of the big wide world, uh, and I, I certainly know when I was living in Afghanistan for a couple of years, you, you human beings conform to their environment, th- that you become what the environment is. And that that's why I think the military is such a great case study for culture. I, I think companies can, in, to some degree, pay lip service to culture because 
you don't really see how people it's not so obvious when people start to adopt and become what's around them whereas in afghanistan uh, the civilians the un the military everyone the longer you're there the the more stuff that isn't really cool becomes normal yeah and, and you come back into I, I remember when i used to come back to australia you would just feel like whoa the, the the conversations weren't deep enough the the problems were ridiculous like how on earth why are you complaining about that you could totally lose context so i think you're right but no one's actually made that point have no you? and it's like you're saying it's like a normalized uh, deviation from from the state it's like the frog in boiling water you're there that long that things become normal that just shouldn't be shouldn't be normal um and and I didn't see this in the media because no one was actually speaking up and saying this going, actually, this looks terrible, but believe me, it was such a savage war that I'm not surprised this has happened. Um, and it's the fault of the military for not engaging with the public on the conduct of this war. They, they uh, dressed up, dressed it up behind kind of operational security. The public didn't know what was happening in Afghanistan, and you you would know that as much as as anyone. They had no clue um, what was happening. It wasn't, uh, you know, widely discussed from the military to the public, and then journalists weren't really allowed much access to the military. So we were asleep at the wheel in Afghanistan. Is it this is a this is a serious issue that hasn't been discussed, and no one's banging the hand on the table talking about this, and it surprises me because we lost a war over there and. Um, yeah, it's just no one said a word about it. It's really, it's unusual. No, it's a, it's a, a very unusual set of circumstances. And I remember I had an experience there. We set up Afghanistan's first mortuary service because anyone that was not from Afghanistan who passed away from a non-terror related incident, like you just had a heart attack, you, you couldn't get home. And I remember, yeah, we'd go to the UN and buy a coffin that you could fly a lead line coffin. There's a pretty morbid conversation, but there's a point to it. Uh, and then we'll lift it back up. Um, but, you know, you, the, when we bought those initially, you, they were $25 each. By the time people cottoned on to our business, that was $5,000, all, all corruption. <laughs> wow. Because it's normalized. Yeah. It's supply and demand, yeah. you know, it's $5,000, uh, mate. That's what it is. And, and I think um, – that's where uh, individuals like yourself, Mark, have so much value to offer any organization, and particularly the bigger the organization, the better, because that's where you see the, the criticality around values. Uh, when you're in your 20s, someone says your mission statement values, you're like, yeah, whatever, is there enough money in my paycheck to to get to the weekend so I can you know, have a few beers? Whereas middle management and, and up, you, that how important is values in framing decision-making? Well, I think the, you know, the, the conduct of an organization will be strong, basically, oh, sorry, closely modeled off the behavior of the top kind of 1% of people that lead it. So that kind of walking your talk. And if you, if you talk about leadership and values, you really got to show that and act that out. Um, because people are going to follow exactly what you do. Your behavior will set that standard. And I think a lot of people don't realize the importance of, of doing, of, of, acting out the values that you say you have. Now, you, and you talk a lot to that, Sean, in terms of that accountability. And I think we've, we've been offered up some really shit examples of leadership uh, lately in terms of yeah, very public, uh, large multinational superpowers uh, who are not necessarily setting the best leadership um, example. But you see this with the guys you work with, with your team, you know, that, that accountability and selflessness in leadership, it's just critical. So, And as you said, Mark, it's, it's you have to, 
you have to walk the walk. You can't just, you can't say it and not do it. If you do not have an, as, as I say to you know, my clients, my favorite C word, consistency, right? If you're not consistently showing up, if you're not consistently following the values, if you're not consistently putting in the extra effort that you want to see your team putting in, then they're just not going to do it. Whether it's in the context of a, you know, a, a um, you know, a military unit or a business unit, it's, it's still a team. You know, if someone's dragging the chain, if it's a leader, uh, I had a call yesterday with with a with one of my clients, and um, they're like, oh, this is happening with the team, and they're not stepping up, and there's no urgency. And I said, that's because you have no urgency. You know, and mm. until you change that, yeah. they're just going to emulate you. Right, simple mm. as that. All our team are basically tall children who can hide stuff better. That's basically it. We've still got the same <laughs> yeah. underlying psychology, which yeah. is that if if they're why would I go the extra mile when the, the leaders aren't? So I'll yeah. just you know, I'll just go on second gear and not third or fourth gear, which I could do, because they're sitting cruising at second gear, you know. And I'm sure you've seen that as well, Mark, in not only in, in in different concepts, in, in your career in the military and in business and in working with other businesses too. Yeah. And if you're looking for the, those common patterns that run through all those fields, whether it's sport or medicine or the military or business, it's really just a team of people trying to achieve an objective. And there's a series of obstacles in the way. It's the same every single time. In the military, it's a bit more severe and you carry weapons and you're up against armed threats, but it's no different to a an emergency room that's trying to deal with a patient that won't breathe. Like it's the same concept. You're trying to work together to achieve an outcome. And that's where I think if you can figure out the processes and habits and tactics that can uh, kind of build those strong teams, that's when you get people that are, you know that understand that well and can communicate that. You can pl- apply it to any field. You make a really interesting point, mate. And I want to touch on that very briefly. A lot of people think you can't plan, you can't have process and procedures because the world's too dynamic. There's too many unknowns. And yeah, you've got to be flexible. You've got to be able to move quickly. How flawed is that logic, do you believe, that we don't need – Structure, because that just makes us bad when it comes to being agile. Yeah, I think people have confused. People look at celebrated startups and and these, the kind of survivor bias you get from these little companies that come out of nowhere with no structure and people go, well, that's the model. Well, it's actually not. Like the idea, I think, is to try and control a lot, the things you can control and accept there are a whole heap of other areas where your enemy or your, your antagonist is going to get a vote. And in those cases, that's where you plan out your contingencies and you have that discipline of process in your, I know your pilots, you've got checklists. That's so that you don't die when you're trying to take off or something bad doesn't happen. You can do the same thing um, in any business. You have a meeting, you can have a checklist or an agenda, and the, the idea is exactly the same. That's something you can control to try and achieve your outcome um, faster, and it's a common not – it's a common SOP through the whole team. It was one of the things that took me quite a few years to to beat the inner rebel out of me to go, well, I don't need structure. Structure. I, I started a business, so I didn't have to be told what to do. And and it was that, that I suppose, that rebellious uh, you know, ego mindset when I was younger coming out. But what I've realized is that, that business is a system, right? Basically, you have a product, you find a person to buy it, you sell it to them and you collect money. That's business. It's that simple. It's not complicated. People complicate business. People right? complicate everything. Complicated. Mate. Like, is, yeah, they do. Yeah. <laughs> but in a business yeah. context or uh, team context, we're probably usually the most complicated because we've gone out and started it. But as you say, that that structure and order to me is the frame 
it puts a it puts the frame on the outside. Mm. It, then we have the ability to be agile and creative to color in what's inside that. And ever since you know, I've instigated the actual frame, I've seen you know, in my you know, businesses and with my you know, clients and things that we work with directly to support them in these processes, it just does this because mm. that structure is your foundation to build on. Yeah. And I think people make the mistake thing. Structure is, you know, blow by, by, blow by blow kind of uh, series of events you need to follow, but it's not. I think your point about frame and framework is important. And I call it kind of formwork. So I'm going to set the formwork and we're going to pull the concrete in that. It doesn't really ha- matter what happens in the middle. And another example would be like a military. This is your area of operations. It's this square on the map. You've got uh, two tank units. Go and clear it. Like that's your formwork and, and how you act within that doesn't really matter. You know what your objective is and what your your parameters are. And that parameter setting, I think that's important. Good bosses do that. They set the parameters, time, money, resources, and they let their teams go and do the work. I think that's, that's a great a good, point, good point in the sense of removing control is that mm-hmm. if you create the frame or the formwork, but also endeavor to design everything in the middle to start with, one, it's really bloody hard to do it because you can't predict the things are going to happen, but two, it's, it's a drain. You're trying to control everything. It's a drain on your team and your team basically end up feeling like they're on a production line because you're telling mm. them everything to do. And as you say, you, you've got a great people. You just give them the frame and you say, that's your area on the map. You, how you clear it. We trust you've got the skills to be, because you've proven you've got the skills. We trust you've got the, so the how is less important than making sure you get the outcome. No, absolutely mate. And so Mark, Give us some insights into you, mate. Like, what are your habits and some of your techniques that you apply that and empower you to get shit done every day? Um, so I try and I try and stay across some of the science of, firstly, science of productivity. But taking a step back, I try and if we, you set that goal for yourself, whether it's to write a book or whatever, I try and make sure I'm excited about it first. Because, like you're saying, if you're not excited about it, it's, it's a lot harder to do it. Um, and then when you're excited, you kind of, I kind of set that form work up. I'm like, all right, I know my manuscript is due in six months. That means my daily, my daily work count's going to be this. And I need to stick to that every day. And I'll build like an Excel page and I'll just track my progress on that. So that's kind of the campaign plan. And then each day, um, I kind of just try to book in my day. I try and have a, a start routine to my day, which might be, you know, spend time with the family until 9 a.m. And then I'll do the, heavy cognitive work only for four hours because the kind of research shows that's that's kind of where your diminishing returns start. And then all the not heavy cognitive stuff, the kind of rote learning or activities, I do that in the afternoon and I'll spend no more than kind of four hours doing that. So I, I don't work long days, but when I, I work, I really try and settle in and do deep work. I shut off all devices and, and really sit there for three or four hours and just try and concentrate. Um, and then at the end of the day, try and do something fun with the family or have a good dinner and try and exercise and try and sleep well. And that's that's kind of my broad plan for making sure I stay on track. I think when you're in the military, one of the things you learn early on is how important sleep is when it comes to oh, execution. And and this is backed up by every which study. Like and, and having been someone that's missed a fair bit of sleep in, in my last career, you kind of know how much worse your performance is when you don't sleep. And people get this wrong in business all the time. You should be getting minimum seven hours. Seven to nine hours is the recommended range. Um, less than that, your productivity really suffers. Absolutely. And one of the things actually, Mark, we've done a lot of study on into this as well, a lot of books, a lot of research into the you know, human performance and all that sort of stuff. And um, uh, there's a book by Daniel Pink called When, and he talks about 
the cycles of of the day that each of us have three cycles. Uh, a lot of people, the morning is that one when you can do the heavy lifting. You can do those really cognitively heavy things that mm. at other times you look at and go, oh, there's no way I could do that right now. Uh, so so that's one block and it generally is about four to five hours. The next one is kind of that midpoint where you're slower, but you can still get stuff done, but then you need a recovery period. And I found with me, my recovery period is actually the morning, my midpoints, the middle of the day, and then my peak is from five to 10 at night. So, I've, I, and, and in learning that, in learning to understand myself, I realized that I place those things that are heavier when I've got the strength to lift them. And I think that's one mm. thing that people often miss. There's that concept of, you know, start with the big rocks first and then you can feel everything in the jar, you know, which is great to a point, but that doesn't work for some people. And, and so we can't apply the same psychological strategy to everyone. You've got to understand yourself and you clearly have an understanding. Okay. If I start with the heavy lifting then go to my mid range stuff, and then I can have my recharge later in the day. And if that works for you, fantastic. And I guess that the point is to people listening is what's right for you is not right for somebody else. You know, some people will start at four in the morning and that's their thing. I didn't know there was a four in the morning because I don't get up till about seven, right? Every it day, exist. but I'm it's, up till about 11. Yeah. You know? and how, so Mark, how did you figure that out? A lot of people just never figure it out. Yeah. Exist day to day in the beige and never go, you know what, maybe mm. I could live a different life. Maybe I could look at things differently. Yeah. What- I think um, companies are, are being quite bad at this because, like, you know, we've got the eight-hour workday. Well, it doesn't actually suit a lot of people to do an eight-hour workday where they're trying to do meetings and work and they don't, can't really rest. And, like, that's not good for productivity. But um, what I found, I started getting things done a lot more productively when I would sit down and think about that kind of, not very urgent, but kind of important tasks I want to get done. I'll try and do that first before I open emails, before I respond to other people. And I think that just stops you from going down that rabbit hole um, that you can go down these days, which is just responding to everyone else's needs and not taking care of your own. So I'll just try and spend a couple of hours just doing that important task first and then switch on your email and, and off you go, do all your meetings, do all your random emailing. And I think it's just paying attention to how you feel. If you feel best, in the morning doing that and then keep following it. And if you feel like shit in the afternoon, then don't force it. Go and go for a run or just relax somewhere. Absolutely. And there's a, there's a concept, the row environment, the results oriented work environment um, where, you know, which is what we, I suppose, loosely run in, in my business. And, and it's, it's based on, uh, uh, not a work-life balance it's based on work-life integration. It's actually integrating the two together. So for example, one of my team, you know, full time, she leaves, every day goes picks up the kids does the homework thing you know gives them some dinner and then she'll do a couple of hours more in the afternoon and it's about focusing on results and i think what we've seen with um we've seen a bit more of a shift towards this out of the need with people being in lockdown people having to work from home people having to create that integration between their job or their business and then their their home life and i think we're going to be continuing to see i believe a shift where, where more people are going to be looking for that flexibility or fluidity rather than you start at 8.30 and you finish at 5.30, you know, yeah. and an hour for lunch at this time. Yeah. And, you know, yeah, I just don't – I when I had a bit of that at McKinsey, I really kind of struggled with it. And I think that your the way you structure your day it should align to whatever your strategy is that you've set yourself. If your strategy is I've got to have this project done 
it's an online course, it's got to be done in three months, then your hours should reflect that and you should be meeting your milestones as you go. And like I was saying about bosses- And saying no to stuff. Saying no to stuff doesn't mean you need to be sitting on your ass eight hours a day in one spot. It might be three hours. If you get the job done, that's what matters. Absolutely. What's 2021 look like uh, so far, Mark? And what's your plans for, for this year? Obviously the book and, and what else? Yeah, I think um, I'll keep, I'll, I'll take a pretty hard push at promoting the book. I mean, I spent a long time working on it, so I'll keep um, talking about it until it comes out in, in late May. And then um, I'm going to start switching to online coursework because I've been waiting to develop that. I think it's, it's the way of the future. I spent my last, I think, year at McKinsey, actually building online courses at, at McKinsey Academy. I stepped away from the client work for a year and did that. And when I was building, I was like, oh, this is clearly the way the, of the future. And um, McKinsey Academy has gone from 20 people to 250 in a couple of years. It's it's really in high demand. So I'm going to go back to course building and uh, just start start building some of those so you can we can deploy it to people who are working at home. Awesome, mate. Now, obviously, Mark, you're kind of living life on your terms. Uh, and we spoke about it a bit before. You know, it's like the, the the band that toiled away for 10 years, the overnight success. Along the way, you must have become familiar with failure and maybe questioning some of the decisions you make. Is there anything that stands out to you over your career where you, you just thought, oh, my God, that's it? Like, I don't really feel like I can go on here. This is – I've made some bad choices. What 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 has happened to you and how did you get back on your feet from a big knock? I think, um, yeah, it was, there was a moment when I was at business school and I was having a tough time with the academics at the start. And I was like, this is, I'm not doing well at this. Maybe I'm not cut out for it. And I think the issue was, is I was, I was trying to do too much at once. I was trying to socialize and live the school life. And really what I wanted, to, what I had to do was just focus and try and lock that down. And I eventually did that, but it came, came with a bit of soul searching there. And then when I went to, into McKinsey, I didn't have, that excitement. It was good to be in, a, in that company. I was grateful to have the job, but the um, I kind of couldn't figure out that vision that was there at the end, and that created a bit of a crisis. I'm like, what the? What am I doing? I don't know what I'm doing. I'm working, you know, 80, 90 hour weeks, so I've just got no idea what I'm what I'm heading towards here, other than just being in McKinsey. So that's kind of when Kill Capture took a bit more of a started to manifest itself a bit more and. I've since gone into that. And to be honest, going out and working on your own for many years is a lot less lucrative than working in a company. You, know, you work in a company, you're going to get paid. You work on your own, you might get paid occasionally. And, you know, and, and you get better <laughs> at it. often got your hands in your pockets going the other way. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. You know, and you get better at it. And I think it's that people have that fear of like, oh, shit, if I don't anything, earn anything, I'm going to be, uh, you know, I'll have low status or I won't, won't be any good to society, whereas – I think it's the opposite. I think you start working on the things that you really believe in and the things that you're good at and you were meant to do. And with that will come eventually, you know, the rewards. Uh, I think, I think a lot of people think that's going to happen when they retire, but you've run out of juice, you know, yeah, I think that that's it. You, you're done. You, you need to, you need to, um, you need to live that life. Uh, now, when we talk about doing things we want to do. Uh, and again, when you look at Instagram, when you look at the Kardashians, uh, everyone sees success has just been easy. How important are the SLJs, the shitty little jobs? How important is it and how often do you do things you don't really want to do, but you know you've got to do? Yeah, I think, uh, yeah, it's it's the worst because people have this uh, notion that you can hack your way 
um, to a, to a high level of skill in a field or a high level of, of success. And I just, I don't really think it's possible. I think most people that have been in sport or business have worked at it for many years and they've done those hours and hours on their own when no one's watching. Um, and I, like you've mentioned, it's, it's hard work. That hack work is, is hard, but it's worth it if you believe in that bigger vision. So yeah, those small jobs really, really matter. Like, even just trying to set up this bloody studio. You know, compared to last time I spoke to you guys, it, it takes takes forever, right? It just takes time. But once once you got it, I don't know, mate. I reckon the the, the passenger seat of the car with the bub in the back <laughs> exactly. and the iPads. You didn't, you, it's, got a, it's got a bit of a ring to it. That? It's okay. got authentic. <laughs> You're right. That's that thing. You cannot climb them. You cannot shortcut climbing the mountain. You it takes take every, time. Every single step. You have to take every single step. And there is no. There are no hacks. You know. It's just. It's yeah, just rubbish. And man, you know that's that's why I love these conversations. Like to be honest, it just feels like that sometimes. And just talking about it to me is like, okay, that's that's right. I forgot it's shit. I forgot it. You know, it's tough and it takes time. And you just feel better to know that other people who have all the 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 the, the profiles on Google and do do things up on stage that we share that common pain. Mm. And I think also I I heard Tony Robbins say this, and I don't. You know, I'm not a huge Tony Robbins fan, but some things he says I found to be really useful. And he said that a lot of people um, overestimate what they can do in one year and they underestimate what they can do in a decade. And I think that's that's true. It's basically saying, you know, have patience. Um, this this work is going to take a long time and have that humility and discipline to keep at it for, for a while. Yeah, I think people think that when they start a business, it's going to go like that. Whereas it actually goes oh. like that, that, and then, and then eventually it starts to kick and you <laughs> surprise yourself how quickly it can kick up. But it's like, you've got to get all of those foundational elements in place. And as soon as they click in, and that's usually all the stuff in here going on mainly, that you will actually, it'll start to come with much, much more ease because you've done the work. You're now, you've now mastered what you need to master and it does take 10 plus years to do it, you know? And as you said at the start of this, this podcast is you know, you've got to have that, you know, to, to use a different word for it is that intrinsic motivation. You've mm-hmm. got to have that excitement coming from inside. You're not going to get it from outside, but you know, and, yeah. and what keeps that excitement going for you? Like, how do you keep it up? Do you, do you focus on it? Do you show it gratitude? I mean, how do you. And run a family, be a dad, all of those, you know, uh, competing interests for time well i remember that i can't you can only choose so many big projects you can only really choose one or two and when you do choose it just go all in on it if you're excited about it and i tried to do that with with writing for example so i really took the time to read all the all the books and decided all right this is important to me i told sam i'm going to be down that basement for two hours each day five days a week and i kind of need that time um and just having that joint understanding and, and commitment to it was, was really what made it work. And yeah, so I think that that basic process really, really helps. Speaking of books, mate, what would you recommend uh, to our listeners in to read in the first half of 2021? Anything make a big impact on you? Oh, yeah. So I actually read uh, Oliver Stone's memoir late last year. And it was an absolute cracker. It's called Chasing the Light. And he talks about his journey, uh, becoming a director, basically, and a, an Academy Award winning director. And I didn't know this, but he was accepted to Yale, left uh, Yale doing the degree he did there, enlisted for Vietnam, and went over and did, I think, a 15-month tour in Vietnam. And 
everything that unfolded for him in Vietnam is is what formed the basis of the film Platoon. And when you, I mean, that's a, such an iconic film. Most people know what that is. And when you go back and read his story about why he told the story the way he did and um, all the details are in the story, were all closely based on his own experiences. That, it was such a good read. I really, really enjoyed it. I have to go out and get into that one. So let, tell us, mate, 14-year-old uh, Mark staring out the window. Uh, he's got dreams and aspirations of becoming a, a soldier, uh, probably at that time wasn't thinking much about luxury clothing brands. Uh, what is one piece of advice that you would have given that kid that may have helped him on his journey to where you are talking to us today? Oh, I would have said, you know, buy some shares in Apple if you can, if you've got some spare money. <laughs> <laughs> you won't have to worry about work. Um, no, I just That's think that, point. like, you know, you, you're going to – Choose something you're excited about. Expect that you're going to get beaten down occasionally and just pick yourself up and keep going. Because sometimes I think perseverance is is worth way more than people give it credit for. And often it's not the, the smartest or the most capable people that make it work in the end. It's the ones that just don't give up. Love it. Never give up. One of my favorite phrases. Absolutely right. Cool. Now, that was awesome, mate. Uh, well, Mark, I think we actually laid down a decent podcast with with mark wales third third take uh mate that's how important you are and how how amazing <laughs> your story is that we all talk about perseverance right here is a, a great example of doing that so hey mark thanks so much mate for for coming on uh, and sharing your your story so much of it's really contextual at the moment with everything going on so appreciate you taking time out of uh particularly writing a book know how much you're uh, we're cutting into your deep thought and flow uh, so thanks again mate for, for coming on to the show when's the book coming out uh, it's already available for pre-order and it will come out at the end of May and you can find it at markwales.com.au forward slash book. Nice. Awesome. And really appreciate the time, Mark. Great conversation. Thank you. Hey, thanks for chatting. Glad we could uh, finally make it work and, and now we've got good tech this time. So Awesome. Can't wait to see what the bunker looks like in six months when we do our next one. <laughs> Cheers, Mark. Thanks again, mate. This has been The Few Podcast with Boo and Sean. If you've got value from this episode and you would like to support us, please share it with your friends. If you're posting this on social media, use the hashtag The Few so we can see who's listening. The Few Podcast is recorded at Momentum Media in Sydney, Australia. To listen to more episodes, visit us at fewpodcast.com and make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. Dream big, keep pushing, and one day you can become one of The Few. We'll see you next week.